You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Financial incentives and the desire to avoid regulatory sanctions, bad publicity, and liability exposure favor tube feeding. But is it the right thing to do? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Thomas E. Finucan, Professor of Geriatric Medicine and Gerontology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, Co-Director of the Elder House Call Program at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center, and Lead Author of the May 2007 article in the Journal of the American Medical Directors Association titled, Tube Feeding in Dementia. How Incentives Undermine Health Quality and Patient Safety. Dr. Finucan, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Good morning, Susan. Explain how incentives undermine health care quality and patient safety for end-stage dementia patients with feeding tubes. I think the best way to start that is to picture the patient that we're talking about. It could be either gender, of course, but imagine a guy in his late 80s, who has had a progressive loss of all of his cognitive faculties and has Alzheimer's disease. Now he's lost his ability to walk around. Next, much of his ability to communicate. He's mostly spending time in bed, generally not recognizing family. And one of the last things that will often happen is that that patient becomes indifferent to food or suspicious of food or unable to swallow food quickly and effectively. At that time, the patient starting to lose weight, the dementia is getting worse, and there's some worry that he's dying because he's not getting enough food. There are two basic channels that you can go down. One, it seems like what we would call palliative care. We're going to go to the bedside, and we're going to do the best we can to feed him. We're going to figure out what he likes to eat, We're going to get rid of all of the drugs that might be interfering with his appetite. We're certainly going to get rid of all of the dietary restrictions, like no ice cream because he was diabetic 50 pounds ago. He can have what he wants to eat. We're going to try to deliver it. We're going to get a concerted group of people to feed him, and we're going to do the best we can. Plan B would be, well, he needs this many calories, this many grams of protein. He's not getting them. We're going to put in a feeding tube, a percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy, and we're going to deliver this man what he needs for nutrition, by golly. The first and biggest incentive for Plan B is a basic misunderstanding about the effectiveness of the feeding tube. In shorthand, it does not prevent aspiration pneumonia. Aspiration pneumonia comes from contaminated mouth flora getting into the lungs, regurgitated gastric contents getting into the lungs. No paper shows that feeding tubes prevent aspiration pneumonia. The other obvious face value is he's losing weight, let's give him food. But if you think of the consequences of malnutrition, mortality, pressure ulcers, infection, suffering, loss of function, if you look at the actual literature, none of the data support any benefit for any of those outcomes. You don't prevent death. You don't prevent pressure sores, nor do you speed the healing of them. You don't prevent other infections. You don't improve the patient's function, and you don't reduce suffering, as best we can tell, by putting in a feeding tube. So one big, big incentive is simply the powerful face value. He's losing weight and not eating. We must feed him to prevent these bad outcomes. He's coughing. He gets pneumonia. We have to keep that food out of his lungs. 
Both of those make perfect sense, but it turns out they're both wrong. It drives a lot of what everybody does in good faith to try to do best by this patient. Then come the worse, the darker incentives. If you're a nursing home operator in many states, I don't know the Medicaid rules state by state, but in many, many states, if you put in a feeding tube, reimbursement is higher than if you simply make the concerted plan A effort to spend time with this patient and try to feed him. Dr. Bruce Leff and I are trying to develop this idea of gizmo idolatry. It's present in many, many areas of medicine, and this is an obvious one. Careful hand feeding, low reimbursement. Bells and whistles, electronic gadgets, fake formulas that really are no better than food, high reimbursement. And, of course, a political lobby that ensures that the reimbursement flows that way. So number two would just be reimbursement to the nursing home. Number three, if you're a hospital, let's say that you have this guy lying in bed, permanently recumbent, poorly communicative, eating little, and something bad happens to him. He goes to the hospital, and now the hospital wants to discharge him as quickly as possible. There are many situations where long-term care facilities will not take someone who has been deemed quote, a problem feeder, end quote, unless a feeding tube is placed. So the hospital has a pretty substantial incentive. They want to move that patient through, keep the length of stay short. They need to placate the nursing home, so they place a pig. If you're the gastroenterologist, of course, that's worth a good bit of money. If you're the hospital, again, it's worth a good bit of money to have the procedure done on your facility. If you're a hospital, it's a good thing to have that procedure done within your facility. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Thomas Fanukin from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine discussing feeding tubes and advanced dementia patients. Dr. Fanuka, what changes do you recommend? I think several changes are necessary. Of course, the very first one is education. We have to get over the easy face value belief that a technology can solve a problem. If you think of any war we've had where we say we're going to apply some technology to this country and straighten them out, that is universally doomed to failure. So that blind belief in technology to solve human problems, I think, has to be overcome in some way. Education is vital to recognize the the actual ineffectiveness of tube feeding. Then, as we were saying, lots of things just follow the money. We have to reward what Thorstein Veblen called uneventful diligence. And what our country likes to reward is exploits. So putting in a peg and having a gizmo by the bedside is an exploit. What this poor man needs, lying there in bed, unable to recognize his children, is not an exploit. He needs uneventful diligence of the people around him. Another very powerful drive or incentive in favor of tube feeding arises in the nursing home because of the terrible climate of suspicion against nursing homes. The regulations are uniformly punitive. There's no assumption of good intent by the thousands and thousands of people who go to work every day in a nursing home. The regulations begin with the suspicion that something is wrong here and that there will be neglect or abuse unless we really keep a very close eye on these guys. 
So punitive, suspicious regulations in the nursing home drive people to overtreat patients so that they can't be accused of neglect. For example, if a skinny elderly man who's been in bed for two or three years in a nursing home dies, or when he dies, if he has bed sores on his sacrum, this is a prime topic of litigation, malpractice litigation, in nursing homes. And I think it would help a nursing home defend itself if it can say, no, we didn't neglect him. Look, here's a little piece of silicone tubing sticking out of his abdomen. We can prove to you that we fed this guy. So it's sacramental in value for many, pe- for many nursing home defense lawyers to have that piece of silicone that they can point to as a defense against this malpractice suit or against the federal regulator's allegations of neglect. What is your best advice to avoid overtreatment of the frail elderly? I would say that most of geriatric medicine and caring for the frail elderly is trying to find that narrow path between overtreating them and under-treating them. You don't want to subject them to meaningless, burdensome treatments, but you certainly don't want to neglect them just because they're frail and elderly. I think that the first rule of trying to make a decision and trying to find your way along that path is to be tolerant. I think in many, many cases with a patient who can't recognize the kids and can't get out of bed, there are two or three possible answers to any question that you ask. All of them are morally acceptable. And what we're always looking for is how to find the fair way to make a decision. A lot of times there's no right answer. It's not wrong to put this elderly man on a ventilator briefly for a chance of survival. It's not wrong to take him to a private room and treat him palliatively if the odds against him are long enough and his suffering is great enough. It's impossible to define overtreatment or undertreatment. What we're looking for in that case is a way that's transparent, fair to everyone who's concerned about this patient, and dedicated to his best interest. The most harmful thing that can happen in that situation is what happened with Mrs. Shivo, where people who have no relationship to family or patient have no interest that's directly related to that individual patient, but have other secondary agendas come in and polarize what should be a calm, sad discussion about a tragic series of events that's about to unfold. If you're trying to steer that path, you just have to hope that everybody that's involved in the negotiation has their eye and their heart on the patient, and they're thinking about doing what's right for the patient rather than forwarding some political agenda. How do you respond to the emotional question that withholding tube feeding in patients with advanced dementia who eat very little and are losing weight, isn't that allowing starvation? The short answer to that is no, is that you have misstated the problem. Not you, Susan, but you, the person who brings that forward. You've misstated the problem. People need calories for three things, basically. You need the energy to be active. You need something to run your basal metabolic rate, which depends on muscle mass in part. And you need to, it takes a certain amount of energy, as it turns out, to absorb food that's in your gut, but that you get into your gut. If you think of this permanently recumbent patient who's extremely skinny, they don't burn much to move around. They don't burn much to, run, to keep the engine running with these atrophic muscles. 
And when they're not eating much, they don't need much to absorb what they've eaten. So determining what starvation is would be determining what level of low caloric and protein intake causes harm to the patient and whether that harm can be reversed by placing a feeding tube. There just is no evidence of benefit in this patient that we're talking about with advanced dementia by placing this feeding tube and delivering nutrition. You don't save his life or prolong it. You don't prevent the development of pneumonia. You don't make him feel better. And all of the other sequelae of malnutrition simply are not corrected by providing nutrition. Dr. Fanukin, thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. I'm Susan Dolan, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.